have you ever broken anything valuable? Just when you think about it. Is there, have you ever had something, like maybe it was something that belonged to your mom or your grandfather or you, but have you ever broken or lost something that was really valuable? And do you, like, do you know the feeling of when you do that and it actually belongs to someone else? <laughs> I, uh, one time I was helping my, my in-laws move and my mother-in-law had this big glass like castle looking thing and I don't know how, but I broke it. Um, and my father-in-law, if you've ever met him, like he loves to just tease me and he loves to just make me feel bad um, just to see what it does to me. And he was like, he was like, Nathan, like Joyce loves this. Like you, you've, you've ruined one of her most priceless pieces of, of just decor. And uh, I can't believe you did that, right? <laughs> he was going on. And I was like, oh man, like, and he was just going on. And then I think when she got there, she was like, oh, Randy, it's not even a big deal. It's fine. Um, but have you ever broken something valuable and just had to battle with how that feels? The, what I want to talk about tonight, this unbreakable hope, Jesus gives us hope and it's unbreakable if we really receive it and understand what it is that he's giving to us. And so you're going to see, and I want to get into this tonight, but I want to share with you that most people in this life hope, put their hope in things that are actually breakable. They, they, they long for, they put their hope in things of this world that can be taken away and can be destroyed. And what Jesus offers us, okay, so, and, and what I want you to, this, the, the main thrust of this is that Jesus offers us unbreakable hope, and, and, and this will be on the screen later. I don't think it's my first slide, so it won't be there now, but unbreakable hope is found in the broken body of our Lord Jesus. So, unbreakable hope is found in the broken body of our Lord Jesus. And we're going to talk about communion tonight. That's what we're, we're really focusing on. But most of the things that we hope for can be broken and can be taken away. And what Jesus came to offer is a hope that is unbreakable no matter what. So, on my, uh, on my trip... I, one of the things I love doing is listening to audiobooks, which sometimes uh, annoys Vicky because we have six kids. And so can you imagine, okay, we're driving from, uh, and, and the older ones know this because they, they fought over who had to sit beside the two babies on the trip, okay? So there's like, there's three seats at the very back of the van, and, and there's a little bit more peace and quiet back there. And then there's the one seat be- beside the two babies that's not quite as peaceful, <laughs> okay? And... Uh, I always have all these books that I want to read and I don't have time to listen to. And so when I go for a long drive, I'm like, oh, I'll get the audio book and I can listen to it. Um, but sometimes that means I'm kind of zoned out and the babies will be crying and, and Vicky's like, what? I need your help right now, even though you're driving. <laughs> so, um, but I love listening to books. And so one of the books I listened to um, was by a guy named Viktor Frankl. And he was a Holocaust survivor. And he's also a psychiatrist, highly trained doctor, had some incredible insights and in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he, he said something that just, I've, I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop turning it over in my, my mind. He talks about how without hope, human beings die. Okay, so, so when, when you think about somebody who gets to the point where they don't want to live anymore, that person has lost hope. They've lost the reason to get up in the morning. They've lost a reason to, to have some sort of purpose or feeling of, of purpose and meaning. And, and as a Holocaust survivor, he talks a lot about his experiences in the Holocaust. And, and if you ever read Viktor Frankl's book, it might be a little bit jarring for you because he writes like a psychiatrist 
but he's writing about some of the most brutal suffering you've ever experienced. And he's almost, in some ways, it feels like he's a little bit detached from it because he's assessing the situation. But he talked about, he watched people in the concentration camps, and he spent time in, in Auschwitz and Buchenwald, and he said that the other inmates, the prisoners, they would know when somebody had lost hope because they just wouldn't get up from their bunk. And no matter how much how many beatings they received, no matter how many threats, they just wouldn't get up. They had lost the will to live. And he said that actually one of the, one of the signs that somebody had lost the will to live was that they would smoke their cigarettes because cigarettes were really valuable if you, if you lived in a concentration camp. You, you trade it for, uh, for food or for clothing or a good pair of shoes. And when somebody took out their cigarette to smoke it, it was a sign that they'd probably be gone within two days. But he, he, he talked about how it was connected to hope. And he tells this one story that has really gripped me. He, he talked about the, the guy that was like the, the warden for the bunk that he lived in. So a fellow inmate, a fellow prisoner. He came to Victor one day and he said, I had a dream. And in the dream, it was revealed to me when the war would end and when we'd be liberated. And so Victor asked him, he said, well, when, when's it supposed to end? He said, March 30th, 1945. And so Victor... It's like, okay. And so he, you know, went on with his life. This was in early March or February. And on March 29th, it was pretty clear the war wasn't going to be ending the next day. And this guy got really, really sick and ended up in bed. The next day, March 30th, he was delirious and became unconscious. And then on March 31st, he was dead. And Victor Frankl tells all these stories about people that, like, they had lost hope and he said, uh, medically speaking, it looked like this guy had died of typhus. But for those that knew him, they knew that he had just completely lost hope. Because in his mind, he was like, what got him up in the morning was that this is all going to, all this suffering, all this senseless suffering and the beatings and what I'm enduring is going to be over on March 30th. And when that became clear that that wasn't going to happen, he had lost completely the will to live. And and that relates to us because if we put our hope in something other than what Jesus offers as unbreakable hope, it can be taken from us. You know, and I think about this often, about how it's tempting for us to put our hope in our family or in our career or in our success. And when we lose the thing that is most important to us, it's, it can be easy to actually lose even the will to live. Like when you lose hope, you lose even the desire to live. And you can do all kinds of reading and study and research on this of, of people that are, you know, they've, they've been at the top of the world, they've had all the money, they've had all the success, and when they've lost it, or they've just completely lost the will to live. And what Jesus offers us is a hope that is unbreakable. And that's what Easter, that's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus offers us hope that's unbreakable. And so, Jesus, as our creator, his desire for you and I is that we would encounter him in a way that is so real that we encounter his hope, that it, it's, it, it takes root in our soul so deep that there's nothing that can take that away, that you can face any situation, any circumstance, not without grief, not without sadness, not without being overwhelmed, not without being upset, but where the hope doesn't, it doesn't leave you because your hope is in something that you can't lose. It's, it's, it's unbreakable. And so we're going uh, to look at John chapter 6 tonight, 
And I'm going to read, it's a big section of Scripture, um, and whenever I read a longer section of Scripture, I'm, I'm always thinking, I hope I don't lose people with it. Um, but it's so important, this, this conversation Jesus has. It's the first time that Jesus talks about the Lord's Supper. And it's, it's one of the times that we don't talk about a lot whenever we take communion in the regular part of the year. But it's really important tonight, because it's the first time Jesus talks about communion. And I want you to know this, that he's, Jesus is talking to a broken, oppressed people. Okay, so the people that Jesus is talking to, he, they're, they're under like Roman oppression and Roman rule. A lot of them are having a hard time feeding, getting enough money to feed their kids. You know, the, the Romans at this time are like enslaving the people of Israel, and the people of Israel are facing up against hard times. They don't know how they're going to pay their rent. They're having a hard time figuring out how to feed their kids. They're trying to get by. They're trying to make ends meet. And Jesus, he's this miraculous, powerful, uh, to them, a man. They haven't figured out that he's God yet. And they're thinking, Jesus could actually set us free. And instead of Jesus telling them what they want to hear, instead of Jesus saying to them, yeah, yeah, like, I'll, I'll set you free from Roman rule, you're going to see what he says, and it actually angers people. This is one of the first times in, in Jesus' ministry where there's, like, crowds of people like thousands of them, okay? So but we're going to read a section that comes right after Jesus fed 5,000 people. Okay, so he's got crowds of people, and they're struggling, and they're broken, and they don't know how they're going to pay their rent. They don't know how they're going to deal with the death of their loved one. They don't know how they're going to deal with just the difficulties of life. And the message Jesus gives makes people so offended that most of them just leave mad. And Jesus famously looks at his close disciples, and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter responds and says, well, where else would we go? You have the answers of eternal life. And what Jesus was doing, and this is why this is so significant, is he didn't want to give temporary hope to these crowds of people. He wanted people to have hope that is unbreakable. Because if Jesus gave them a temporary hope, if he said, sure, I'll set you free from Roman oppression, or I'll help you pay your bills, or I'll help you whatever, then he knew that the same difficulty could come later on down the road, and they'd be right back in the same place again. But what Jesus offers and what he says here is if we receive it, if we believe him, it gives us a hope that cannot possibly be taken away from us, regardless of the circumstances. You know, to, to, to go back to the concentration camps and what happened in, in World War II, like there's some incredible stories of people that held on to their hope in Christ in the midst of that intense suffering. And their hope is what gave them the ability to face the difficulties and challenges of life and to hold on to to hope. And it was this is what, in, what Jesus is talking about. And he's explaining the significance of communion. So we're going to start um, in verse 22 of John chapter 6. And, and just listen for the conversation. And you, you, if you put yourself in the story, um, when, when you hear some of the rebuttals and the things people say, you'll see yourself. You'll see that, man, I've had some of these same questions. I have some of the same struggles. And just listen to what Jesus says uh, and then maybe you'll be able to relate with why people were so frustrated, why they're so angry at, at what he tells them. So John chapter 6, starting verse 22, it says, The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized that Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake, and they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Okay, so just a reminder. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. 
Okay, so if you saw a miracle like that, you'd be chasing after that guy too, right? Like, and, and Jesus calls him out for it. He's like, you're just after me because you like the taste of the bread. <laughs> you don't even care really about the sign. But he had just fed 5,000 people, and then he walked across the water uh, to the other side of the lake after the disciples. And the crowds are, are putting this together. They're going, the disciples left. They took the only boat, and Jesus has gone too. And they're starting to figure out, like, how did he get over there? And they're starting to see, like, there's something really significant about this guy. Okay, and, and what's also important is, is these signs actually meant something. So Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, it's reminiscent of what God did in Exodus when he rained manna down from heaven. When Jesus walks on the water, he's showing them, like, I'm the same God that split the sea. Like, he's trying to reveal to them, I'm, I'm Yahweh, I'm the creator, right? And so the crowds are curious, and they're going after him. Verse 26, it says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. So he's saying to them, he's like, you want temporary things. You just want your belly to be full. You want me to help you get your rent paid. You want me to help you fix the difficult situation at home with your kids. Like, but there's a deeper side. There's something here that I want to offer you that's unbreakable. If you understand what it is I'm saying to you, you'll have hope that will last for all eternity. But the people that were following him, they were after just the temporary. They wanted, they wanted a fix right now. They just wanted a quick fix. They wanted things to get better in the, in the present. But Jesus was concerned about forever. He was concerned about eternity. He says, don't be so concerned with perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. He's, he's trying to whet their appetite. He's like, don't, don't get hung up on just like the temporary fixes and the things that are happening right now. Like, I want to give you a hope that lasts for all eternity. Like, maybe you want to fix this short little lifespan that you have here and now, but I'm concerned about forever. I'm concerned about all eternity. They replied, and this is uh, some of my favorite words from Jesus. They said, they replied, we want to perform God's works too. And they asked Jesus, what should we do? So Jesus, what do we do to, to please you? What do we do to do the things you want us to do? And it's so simple. Verse 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one that he sent. He's not asking for something special. He's not asking for you to do something impossible. He says, just believe, right? And he's going to get to the significance of communion. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. Which I've always just thought, like, like they literally just saw him feed 5,000 people. They know that he walked across the water, and they're like, just show us another sign. Like, we... We need more information. If you want us to actually give our life to you, we need more than, than just those things and just what you're saying. Show us a miraculous sign. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. This is super important. Verse 33, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is making this really profound statement here. He's saying, my body, me coming, is the food that you need. And it's not food that will just satisfy you for a temporary time. It's food that will satisfy you for all eternity. Sir, they said, give us this bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all of those that he's given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. 
So this is all sounding really good. Jesus is talking about eternal life. Who doesn't want eternal life, right? So Jesus, it's like he's got the crowd in the palm of his hand, and then he goes off on this really strange tangent and offends a whole bunch of people. <laughs> and I've always loved this about Jesus' teaching. He was more concerned with truth than he was about just saying what people wanted to hear. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So instead of explaining this <laughs> in a way that they wanted to know, he says, he says some really challenging things. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? But Jesus replied, stop complaining when I said, for nobody can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I'll raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, only I who was sent from God have seen him. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world will live, is my flesh. So Jesus says something like, I, maybe you've been around church before and you know that the bread is, uh, represents Jesus' body and, and the wine or juice is, is the blood. And you kind of you made that connection. But can you imagine if you're hearing for the first time this, this miracle worker, this guy who's gaining popularity, and he says to people, my, my body is, is bread for you. My blood is drink. So eat my body and drink my blood. <laughs> like, and he just kind of leaves that hanging. Like, what a strange thing to say to a crowd of people that like, you and I have, you know, some history of Christianity to have a little bit of an understanding of that. Jesus is saying this to this crowd. It's the first time they're hearing that, and he's saying something that to them was like, whoa, what, do you, what are you saying? What do you mean your body is food and your blood is drink? Like, this sounds crazy. So, you know, uh, it makes sense. Verse 52, then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. Like, wouldn't you ask the same question? Like, wouldn't that kind of just concern you a little bit if you were out on, at a, on a hillside and, and the guy started, you know, talking about his flesh was going to be food? Like, you probably would be taken aback. Like, what, what is it he's trying to say? So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. <laughs> and so then he gets a little bit more uh, blunt with how he explains this. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Pretty crazy. Like, Jesus is saying to this crowd, like, the only way for you to get eternal life, which everybody wants, everybody wants to live forever, you know, everybody's bothered by death, no one wants to die, no one wants their loved ones to die, if you want eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, it sounds bizarre, like, if, if, if you're thinking it sounds bizarre today, think about the people that are hearing that for the first time. But Jesus is very clear on who he is, and, and this is why this is so significant. So he says, anyone, in verse 54, but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate manna but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I'm not going to um, read the rest of it, but basically 
a whole crowd of people turn and walk away from Jesus after this. And Jesus looks to his 12 disciples, and this is really key, and this is one of the most encouraging parts of Scripture for me personally, is he looks at his 12 disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? Because he could tell that they were struggling with some of the things that he just said. And this is, the reason this is so encouraging, I just want you to think about some of the questions you struggle with here in this life. Some of the things that God has not done that you wished that he would. Some of the pain and suffering that maybe you've experienced in your own life or you've seen other people experience. You know, we referred to Auschwitz and what happened in World War II at the beginning. You think about some of that level of suffering and the questions that we have about, like, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why do these things happen? Jesus is talking to people that have the same struggles and questions that you and I have today. Most of you know the reason my wife and I were traveling back and forth to New Brunswick is because my wife's sister died. She was 39 years old, uh, five kids. Some of them were young enough that they might not have a whole lot of memories of, of Becky, my wife's sister. And as a couple, like we asked some of those questions. We prayed, a lot of you prayed, that God would heal Becky. God's done that kind of thing today. He, he does do that. Sometimes he doesn't. But some of those very real questions come up where it's like, well, why, God, why didn't you do that? Why, why is she gone? Why is she taken from us? You know, the people Jesus is talking to, they have some of those very real questions. They want their immediate needs taken care of. But you know what Jesus knew? He knew that if he satisfied the immediate need, that something would happen again, maybe in a year, maybe in two years or five years, that if their hope was in that immediate need being satisfied, it would be gone again. Jesus was concerned. The reason he teaches the way that he does, the reason he points to himself is he's saying, I want to give you hope that's unbreakable. I want to give you hope that lasts for all eternity. That even when you face death, even when you lose a loved one, even when you're praying for something and you don't see the answer to that prayer, that your hope isn't gone because your hope isn't in just the immediate thing being fixed. Your, Your hope isn't in that answer in that moment. Your hope is in Jesus, which is unbreakable. Like Jesus was offering something that was going to last for all eternity. He wasn't ignoring the questions. He was, he was wanting to give us uh, hope that lasts forever. I just want to give you a biblical example of um, something that I think we do. We, we, we sort of idolize the really great stories in the Bible. Um, have, how many of you remember the story about Caleb in the Old Testament? Anybody? Remember Caleb? Um, I want to draw your attention to two guys as an example of what we're talking about here, Caleb and a man named Uriah. Caleb, um, not, not this Caleb. Um, Caleb, I'm going to read these verses from Joshua. Those will be on the screen. This is at the end of Caleb's life, and, and just listen to what he says. He says, Now as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well, as he promised, for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise. Even while Israel wandered in the wilderness, today I'm 85 years old, I'm as strong now as when Moses sent me on the journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord has promised me. You know, that Caleb's story is really encouraging for us. He, he's one of the guys that in the story of Israel, um, he was one of the spies that were sent into the, the promised land, and, and he came back and he had this heart of faith. He said, God will deliver uh, the people of that land to us. We will be victorious. 
He was one of these spies that came back with a, a report of putting uh, people's faith in God. But he was voted out. Okay, so him and Joshua had a good report, and the rest of the spies that went into the promised land, they came back and they said, no, the land is just, it's too much. People there are giants, they're crazy warriors, they just, we're, we're not going to be able to win. We, and they didn't trust God. And so God sent Israel back into 40 more years of, of wandering. Caleb and Joshua, they're the only two guys that actually survived to make it into the promised land. And these verses I just read, Caleb's at the end of his life, and he's 85 years old, and he says, I have more strength and energy now than back 40 years ago. Like, I'm just, he had lived this life of victory and faith, and he's, he's somebody that we look to often as Christians, and we're like, man, I want to be like Caleb. You know, I want to be 85 years old, and I just want to be strong, and I want to be full of faith and vigor, and I want to go on. I want to, and we think, and I think wrongly, we think, well, if I just live a life of faith, I'll turn out just like Caleb. And for some people, that is true. They get to live that way. But there's another guy in Scripture. His name is Uriah. And Uriah, if you remember, he's the wife or the husband of Bathsheba. And so when King David um, famously committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah was her, her husband. And we don't talk about Uriah a whole lot. But Uriah, he was one of David's inner circle, one of David's mighty men. So if you read the list in 2 Samuel, about all David's 37 super close uh, warriors and mighty men, he was one of those guys, okay? He had served faithfully under David's leadership for a long time. David, while Uriah is off fighting for David, David's home, and he, he's up on the, the rooftop and he looks across at Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and she's bathing, and he starts thinking lustful thoughts about her, invites her into his home, sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and then he realizes what he's done. Like, I've just impregnated one of my most faithful warrior's wife. I've got to cover this up. So he brings Uriah home. Uriah is so faithful. He's so committed that he won't even sleep with his wife because he says, I'm not going to do that while my, my soldiers are off fighting on the front lines. So he stayed in David's courtyard. He wouldn't go home. So David's frustrated. He's like, how am I going to cover up this, this scandal? Right? Like, how am I going to cover up what I've done? Like, pretty clearly, she's going to be uh, showing soon, and everybody's going to know she's pregnant, and Uriah never slept with her. Like, the secret's going to come out. So what David does, he writes a note to Joab. He's the leader of the army. And he gives it to Uriah, and he says, bring this back to the commander. So Uriah goes back to the battlefront, and he carries his death letter with him, right? And so Joab reads the letter, and David commands Joab. He says, he says go into the front lines of the battle with the soldiers, with the mighty men, and, and right when the battle is fierce, right when it's hot, pull back. And when you pull back, make sure Uriah is in the middle of a fight, and he can't get back with you, and he's going to die, right? And so then that's what they do. Right? So they all pull back. Uriah, Uriah dies. Can you imagine the looks on the faces of all of the mighty men that were close and had fought arm in arm with Uriah for years? Like the shame like that they knew they had been given command to pull back. The only thing we see in Scripture about Uriah is that he was this incredibly faithful man of character. He was upright. He trusted God. He trusted his king. And he was stabbed in the back by his king by his wife, by his army commander, and by all the mighty men that he'd served alongside of for many years. Isn't that crazy? And we don't, like, there's nothing that he does in the scriptures that show that he deserved that. And you know, I was, and the reason I'm sharing these two stories with you, I was in a conversation with someone um, on the East Coast. He'd been a pastor for years, and he shared this insight, and it just rocked me. And he compared the two. He compared uh, Uriah and Caleb, and he says, we kind of idolize Caleb's life. But then when we experience some of the things that like Uriah went through, where we're stabbed in the back or things are going on or bad things happen, we start to think, well, maybe I've just messed up. Maybe I've failed. Maybe I've done something wrong. 
But there's no indication in Scripture that Uriah had sinned, and that's why David was able to go and sleep with his wife, and he did this scandalous thing to make sure that he was killed, right? And, and w- the reason I want to share that is because as we follow Jesus, like, you have to realize, like, God does desire to bless us, but sometimes we face suffering and hardship and difficulty, and this side of eternity, there's just no answers for it. In the church, we tend to idolize people like Caleb, and we think, man, I just want to be filled with energy and faith at the end of my life. But if we, if we think that that's the way, that's the ideal, then we'll be super discouraged when we face difficulty like Uriah faced. You know, I, I know lots of devout Jesus-following Christians that are very unknown in this world, and they face hardship, and they face suffering. And I just sometimes I wonder, I'm like, why is that? You know, and we, and we tend to think that, like, well, maybe there's something wrong. But you know what? If we catch what Jesus is saying, then whether you're like more like Caleb or whether you're more like Uriah, you're going to have a hope that's unbreakable because your hope isn't based on experiencing all of the victories or experiencing all of the answered prayers, like, which God does answer prayers. God does love to give us victory. But if you face hardship and you've actually understood what Jesus is talking about here, you have an unbreakable hope. You have a hope that cannot possibly be taken away from you no matter what it is that you face, no matter what it is that you go through. That's why I love the scriptures, you know, and, and, and I think we, we mess up the message of the scripture sometimes because we like to elevate the stories we like. We like to, to, to look at the people that did experience the victory or did have, you know, the answers they were looking for. But there's tons of stories of, of people that, that faced hardship and difficulty, and we don't fully understand why. But, you know, the other insight that this, this guy pointed out to me in comparing these two stories, he said, you know, we don't know why God trusted Uriah with the, the life that he lived. But because of what Uriah went through, we have Psalm 51, which is the incredible prayer of repentance that David prayed after he was confronted of his sin. You know, Solomon um, was, was born to Bathsheba. He was the second son born to Bathsheba, wrote Proverbs, Song of Solomon. There's some incredible, God brought good out of that horrible situation. And, and we don't like to think about Uriah being this kind of casualty in some ways, but the reality is, is that some people just face those difficult times. And Jesus, the reason he emphasizes his body and his blood here is because he's saying, your hope has to be in me. It just has to be in me, period. And if it is, if you believe in me, if you trust me, that hope can never be taken away from you. But if you trust this ideal, if you're like, well, no, I want to be victorious or I want to have a life more like Caleb, well, if you don't experience that, your hope can be taken away. And Jesus doesn't want to see that happen. So unbreakable hope is found in the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that should be up on the screen. Um, Jesus is saying in, in John chapter 6 that unbreakable hope is found in the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 53 and 54 of what we read from John 6, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day. So I think we can understand why people were confused, why people maybe were offended. You know, if we're honest, probably some of us have been offended with God in some way because of some circumstance or some situation that we just don't understand. Why does he allow that to happen? And, and we don't always have 
sufficient answers to those questions. But what Jesus is offering through communion, what he's offering through him coming and, and offering his life for us is a hope that is unbreakable. And what's profound about what Jesus was saying, you know, if you, if you look at the leaders of other religions or religious movements, they always point to something that you and I can actually do. Like you've got to learn more or you have to live a certain way or you have to learn a certain language so you can read a holy book or whatever it is. There's all these things that you have to do. And Jesus, it's so incredible what he says is because when, when the people ask him in, in John chapter 6, well, what do we do to perform the works of God? Jesus says, believe in me. Jesus is saying, I, he's saying, I am the hope. My body broken for you, my blood spilled for you is the hope. Jesus came and he offered his body on our behalf for all sickness, for all sin, for all wickedness, for all oppression. He came and he offered himself and he invites us to believe and to receive him. And my, my question to you tonight is, is, do you believe? Like, do you believe Jesus? I'm going to invite the, the team to come up and we're going to take communion together um, I think just, oh yeah. Um, and, and, and communion tonight, as we, as we take this, I just want to um, continue to reiterate, like Jesus gave us this. He gave us his, his, his body, his blood, because it was his body broken and his blood spilled that makes us right with God. And when our hope is in Jesus, and I just want you to think about, and maybe some of what I shared tonight resonates with you when you think about suffering. You know, one of the things that, that I am aware of, just because of how many people that I've, I've talked to and situations that I've, I've been made aware of, is that like, we can face situations in life that make us lose hope. You know, I, I, I've thought about it often, how, like how much I love my kids. I have six kids. I have a beautiful wife. And I, and I thought like, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that they're going to be around for as long as I am. There's no guarantee that some crazy thing might not happen. If, that, if something crazy happened that was beyond my control, like would I lose hope completely? I know that I'd be absolutely devastated. I don't know how I would, I don't know how I would face the day. But what Jesus is offering here is he's, he's offering us hope that in the face of any circumstance, in the face of any tragedy, it's unbreakable. It can't be taken away because our hope is in him and he is eternal. He is forever. And all he asks for from us is faith, is belief. Do you believe? Do you receive? Do you accept me? That's what he asks of us. Uh, I'm going to invite Jeremy and Alyssa um, and Lucy and Petra. <laughs> to come up. And how we're going to do communion, communion, um, the way we practice it here is it's open. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe him, you're welcome to come. Um, I would ask if you're, if, if God has brought something to the surface in your heart as we're talking tonight, if you're aware of some sinful behavior in your life, um, before you come, I would encourage you to offer that up, like ask God for forgiveness. Tell him you receive if you're not in that place, if you're living in, in sin in some way or you're, you're not someone who's a follower of Christ, don't, uh, don't feel pressure to come. Um, it's okay to, to sit this one out. Jesus actually, um, the scriptures tell us to, to sit it out if we're not uh, embracing him, believing him. 
but it's open to everybody. And if God is speaking at all to your heart tonight, uh, I just want to encourage you to come and take this in a spirit of faith, um, in, in a spirit that says, Lord, I just, I receive you. I believe you. You know, regardless of what has gone on in your life, regardless of what you're facing, maybe it's some difficult situation you're having a hard time understanding, or maybe it's some sin from your past that you just think, man, there's just no way for me to be reconciled with God or for things to be made right. Well, communion is the hope that, yes, it can, because Jesus literally gave his life for us. And so if God's bringing something to the surface in your heart, I just encourage you, even before you come up, just to offer that up to him, a prayer of uh, repentance and uh, a prayer of just receptivity to God and to who he is. Um, so let's, let's stand, and, and what we'll do, um, Justin and Lauren, as they play the song, you can come up and you can take the, uh, the juice and um, Jeremy and Lucy, it looks like, will give you the bread. And you can just take that back to your seat. Um, and after uh, the first song is done, when everybody's got the, the juice and the, and the bread, um, we'll, take, we'll take communion together. And so I'm going to pray, uh, and then I'll invite you to come on up and um, you can take, take that back to your seat. Lord, we just, uh, just want to thank you for who you are. Lord, again, I just, I'm so aware of how the, the message of Good Friday is, is so incredibly significant. And Lord, I know that uh, I can't, in, in the English language, in my experience as a preacher, I can't do justice to, to the significance of this. But Lord, your scriptures make it clear, Jesus, that this is, this is a, uh, a high point of, of our year and, and in our faith, that Jesus, you, you literally came and offered your body broken, your bloodshed for us because you want to give us hope that's unbreakable, hope that can never be taken away. You want to give us eternal life. And so, Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody here tonight that maybe they're thinking about something they're wrestling with or struggling with, and maybe they haven't been trusting you, I pray that tonight they would sense you and that trust and faith would well up in their hearts. And God, for those of us um, that have been trusting you and, and continuing to push forward in you, I just pray that there'd be a real sense of your peace and your presence. And as we take this together tonight, Lord, that um, we would have a sense of you at work in our midst and that you would just fill us with the hope of what is to come. Jesus, you're over and over again in this passage, you talked about eternal life. We thank you for the hope that is in you, that is eternal. 